Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. The name we are given, the name we call ourselves, and the names other people use to refer to us are powerful parts of our identity. Our names are shaped by our culture, our relationships, our needs, and our preferences. Many people go through a legal name change in their lifetimes, and even more of us go through unofficial name changes. Recently, the names that students choose to go by at school, if it's different than their given name, has been a source of controversy. Iowa lawmakers have introduced a bill that would require require parental notification if a student chooses to go by a name or pronouns that differ from those they use at home. This hour, I'll talk with three different Iowans who have changed their names for various reasons, and we'll also talk about the changing of place names. My first guest today is Luke Fleming, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Montreal. He has done a great deal of research into the anthropology of naming. Luke, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here. And I just want to start with the the variety of ways that people in different cultures approach naming, because I think for the majority of us who live in the United States, who are part of this Western culture, we feel very comfortable with <laughs> with how parents select a name that they think is the nicest or the most beautiful or, or whatever reason they pick that first name. The child also gets the last name usually of their father. It is the way that most of it is done. But there is a huge variety in how different cultures approach naming, right? Indeed, there is. I mean, we tend to think about our naming tradition not as a tradition. We assume that people all have first names and last names, but in many places you have one name or uh, your name changes often during your life so that you don't have one name that's fixed to you for your whole lifespan. There are many different differences in how much names have meanings, semantic meanings. So, you know, in our I know your name is Charity, so you, you're an exception, but most names in American English are, are, don't have a, a, a semantic meaning. But in lots of other places, you give n- names like beauty, reason, strength. Um, these are some common Mongolian names, for instance. Or you might have uh, birth order names. There are all sorts of different ways of going about naming people. It's, it's, it's true. There's a vast variety of ways to go about it. The naming conventions that we have in the United States, it feels to me, I know that that most Western countries have a somewhat similar approach, but it also feels to me like it's a an expression of our love of individuality in our culture. Do you feel like that's true? Oh, absolutely. I think that th- there's a little bit of a tension, right? So some names go down in, in families, often the middle name. In, in my experience, is, is, will be something that's been a, a family tradition. But even when somebody gets the name of their parent, they will, t- you know, the second or the third, they, they want to be distinguished from the other. Whereas in other cultures, often name sharing, it really forms an intimate bond between two people. For instance, in Inuit naming traditions, a new, a name gets recycled when someone's died often. So I've read a lot about the Greenlandic tradition of this, where you, you, you try to find the person who's the reincarnation of somebody who's passed away and give that name to that person. And that person really will be identified 
with the person who has passed away so that the members of their family, for instance, will use the kin terms that they used to use for that person for this little baby, you know, call them father or or whatever, if that was the the, the way in which they were related to the person who's deceased. So, yes, absolutely. I think that uh, names for us are very personal. It is about individuality and and, and differentiating ourselves from others. And so that's why it's so personal to us, yeah. Although, of course, uh, there are people who live in the United States. There are people who live in Iowa who come from cultures that are, are not part of, of that cultural tradition that I've been describing. And, and sometimes that can be tricky for people to embrace another culture's naming traditions. I am sure that there are many classroom teachers who have struggled with names that seem very unfamiliar to them just because it's not a part of their cultural tradition. That can be a source of tension. Certainly. And a lot of this has to do with what I, what I mentioned before, the fact that we don't reflect on the fact that this is a tradition and that it is a cultural specificity. So the desire that, uh, you know, we, we make people have a last name when they come. We make, we try to change the phonology of names that are rather different to kind of regularize them by an American phonology. Think about the name changes that indigenous groups are doing now. Part of that is re-nativizing the phonology of it, making it different again, and asserting their exteriority from the Anglophone society by, by recreating that difference. And so, yeah, ways in which names get regularized, the, the pronunciation of the names of, of foreign names get regularized, can make people feel a little bit excluded. I'm sure that it, it, that happens. And I know that it can be a way in which people get stereotyped on their CV or something like this. If you see a very foreign-looking name, that can be a way that people uh, kind of a more subtle way in which racism gets gets uh, expressed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and there have been studies that have shown that sometimes it's not a very subtle way that racism gets expressed. For example, there are many traditional African-American names in this country, but it has been shown that, for example, if somebody has an apostrophe within their name, they are less likely to get a job or have their resume move forward in a job search. So there is an element of linguistic racism? Is that is that a term that you'd use for this? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the issue has to do with this dynamic, this interesting tension in names between names being something very personal and individual and names as something that classifies us, that marks us as members of certain groups. And so we, we think there are a set of unmarked names for us, Barbara, Bob, John, these, we think of those as just regular names. But of course, they also are part of a cultural tradition. They're just unmarked for us because we're used to them. But then when we hear, quote-unquote, foreign names, those are very marked, and then we class that person as a member of this or that group. And, and, and so it's that tension between names as things that classify people as members of different groups and names as something that are very intimate and personal. I, I want to talk about changing names as I mentioned earlier, a lot of us go through a legal name change in our lives. The vast majority of women in the United States who get married take the last name of their husband. So so that's something that is extremely normal, I guess, in our society. But it's also, I mean, that is a shift in identity when you choose to change your name. Where does this fit in to our naming conventions? 
Well, I think there are a number of issues that could be distinguished there. One has to do with how state institutions are important to our identity there, right? How they legitimize our identity. So we need our name to be changed on a passport, on an official document. And so it, in that way, the state is kind of co-opting some of our power to determine our own identity. In many other societies that I've studied, people change their name when they're going through a string of bad luck. They'll say, I'm not being called by that name anymore. I'm changing my name. Hmm. And so, you know, it's really something where it's their own agency to change it. So there's, that's one level, I think, that's interesting, where somehow our authority to do this is dependent on the state. So you talked about this law that wants to say that parents need to be informed. And so, again, here state, the state is intervening in a name, name change process. And secondarily, the question about identity. I don't think necessarily that if you change your name that you – it doesn't mean necessarily that you're giving up your identity, but the names can also reflect changes in your roles and your relationships. You know what I mean? So often do pe people do take a different name, not just upon marriage, but upon rights of initiation, so that it's a marker of a, a, a change of status in your life that you're taking on. But certainly, of course, that's – very gendered in our own society. Well, and of course, a lot of us take on different names for different roles. One of my names is mom, for example. So we have those, those sort of informal names. I'm also thinking about the fact that a lot of us get called by a different name when we're young, but then as we become an adult, we want to go by our full name, or we might just change the, the way that we introduce ourselves to people. I'm one of those people. Everybody called me Cherry when I was little, and, and now almost nobody other than my mother. So, I mean, there, there are those informal changes that we go through as well that, again, are kind of tweaking our identity, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean... There's a difference between kin terms like mother and a name like charity because a kin term is relative to the relationship between the two people and shifts, right? We all have mothers, but we don't all have a charity in our life. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. so there's a difference in that sense. But yes, the notion of the nickname or of the kind of familiar name that you were called when you were young and how that becomes attached to the intimacy of childhood and you don't want that necessarily to be the name that you're called by just everybody. And I think that that's understandable. That is the kind of thing that I'm talking about, where you change it. There's a shift in your life in, in your life stage or the people that you're interacting with, and you want a more formal, you want the fuller name, right? But these are variants on the same name, right? The nicknames often are variants phonologically related to the full name. And so it feels like it's variations around a theme. It's not a complete change, you know what I mean? It does feel like when somebody does choose a new name for themselves and changes their name legally, it feels like an act of empowerment. How do you see that action in our culture? Well, an act of empowerment for whom, I guess, would be the question. For the person themselves, obviously, if they're taking that decision, changing names and changing pronouns uh, in, in transgender transitioning, that's certainly an act of empowerment. But, but of course, it, it's a, names because they're public, because they, they circulate around in a community, they have effects on everybody else, these name changes, right? And so it, it's a social phenomenon, but one which in our society we feel should be controlled by the person who is named, right? That then the person named should have control over this. But that is not universal. Often names are bestowed upon someone by a certain relation or by a clan group or something like this. So this notion that we have 
we should have control over our own names and how we're called, again, reflects a kind of idea of individual autonomy and liberty and agency. Luke Fleming, thank you so much for talking with me. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Luke Fleming is Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Montreal. We're talking about names this hour and the act of changing one's name. We'll find out more in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're talking about names, the cultural forces that shape our names, the act of choosing and changing your name. I'll talk with an Iowan who is trans about changing their name. I'll talk with a woman who initially chose not to take her husband's last name, but then changed her mind after 10 years of marriage. And we'll also talk about changing place names. My next guest chose a new name for herself as an adult as a part of an effort to better connect with her heritage. Abena Sankofa Imhotep is an author and executive director of Sankofa Literary and Empowerment Group and Sankofa Literary Academy. Abena, thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Charity. It's good to be back. Well, so <laughs> your name, Abena Sankofa Imhotep, this is not the name that you were given at birth. Tell me what made you decide that you wanted to change your name. Well, I've long been curious about my family history and Black history in general. And um, after conversations with my dad as a teenager, I always said, well, I'm really curious about where we come, come from. And my dad told me that his grandmother told him that her grandmother said that our family came from the West Coast of Africa. And so that's just a little bit of information. But as I got older, I wanted to know how true that was, because our, our history is passed down in my family and a lot of African-American families orally. So the oral history is really important. And I did a little research and found out he was right. And that made you want to go by a different name? Yeah, it actually did. I mean, my parents gave me a name at birth, uh, which was a beautiful name. Um, however, they chose that name for me. And I'd always been curious about culture and history and my own genealogy. And so doing the research and DNA testing, I learned that I had um, that I have Nigerian ancestry, Benin ancestry and Ghanaian. And true to what my dad said, that's West Africa. And so I wanted to choose a name that would accurately represent my genealogy. And so I chose Abena Sankofa. How did you decide on this name? Well, you know, naming traditions in Ghana, um, particularly in the Akan tribe, are such that when a new baby is born, the parents give the child a name. But in addition to the, the name given by mom and dad, the child is named after the day of the week they're born on. And so there's a male and female version 
of every day of the week. And I was born on a Tuesday. So the female version of Tuesday is Abena. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. And Sankofa is a name and a word that obviously carries a lot of power for you because you've also used that as the name of the organizations that you have founded. What does Sankofa mean? Sure thing. Sankofa is a word that it carries so much um, deep meaning for me. And in general, it means to return and retrieve to go back and fetch the lessons of the past and bring them forward to do positive things for our future. And so the principle alone is enough to just stand on that and do that work. And so I felt like that was a name that I could certainly live up to. And it aligns with my purpose and my reason for being alive. So I adopted that as my middle name. But as I said, the principle alone is enough for it was enough for me and my family to wrap ourselves around my husband and I and just stand on that and say, yeah, that's something that we could do. We can certainly use the lessons of the past to do great things for the future. Now, I've asked you here to tell your story, but this is something that your husband also did. And, and the two of you chose your last name together. Tell me a little bit about that process. Yeah, well, we we fell in love. <laughs> the great African-American love story, the great Black love story. Um, we fell in love later in life and decided that, you know, no, nomenclature clearly is important. And we wanted a name that would um, that would be something, again, that we could stand on. And Imhotep is an Egyptian word. It's an Egyptian name. So we went to North Africa for that. And it means a lot of things. Um, it's essentially, it means peace or I come in peace. But then it also is the name of the very first physician, the ancient Egyptian physician Imhotep, who was also an architect. He designed the first step pyramid. And so that name is, it carries a lot of weight. It carries a lot of meaning. And so we bear these names with honor. And I think we do our very best to live up to those names. Now, you mentioned that your parents gave you a beautiful name at birth. And of course, as parents, a lot of us go through a very long and careful process of, of choosing a name for our child. How did they respond to your decision to change your name? Well, my dad is deceased, um, and I'm sure he would have kind of gave me the side eye a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but my mom, she was she was sad. You know, she spent a lot of time on my name. I have siblings who have very common American names. And then um, for me, for some reason, when I was born, my parents kind of went all out on my name. It was a very ethnic sounding name. And again, it was a beautiful name that I no longer acknowledge. Um, so she was sad and she wanted to understand. She questioned, you know, what are your religious beliefs now? What do you believe in? I said, well, my new name has really nothing to do with religion. It has everything to do with culture. So over time and education and conversations with my family, they've grown to understand my reason why. And I think the why is the key. When your family and loved ones understand your why, then it's easier for them to swallow. Now, whether they, they um, accept it or not, that's their responsibility. My name has already changed. So it is what it is. 
but that piece of education and conversation was critical. This sounds like a, a really empowering act for you. And, and you were talking about your family's history and your family's oral tradition. But we know that many African-Americans don't have a connection to their family's history because of slavery, because that connection was severed in a purposeful way. So in in choosing this name, in connecting to your heritage through all of the research that you've done, does yeah. that feel like a way to reconnect? It does. And it's so, it's weird and cool at the same time, Charity, because, you know, I... I know my grandparents' names, and I was fortunate enough to have some of them in my life. They were, some of them were living as I, you know, was during my childhood, but I don't know my great-grandparents' names, and I don't know anything about my family beyond that. So history and the research was so important to me because it's about identity, and there's nothing more powerful than knowing who you are. So when I put those pieces together based on the stories my dad told me and then the facts that I uncovered during research, it made sense to me to make those connections. And it's almost it's so liberating. It's like emancipation. It's it's a liberating wow. thing to know your name. And so um, anyone who attempts to call me by my former name. I, I take that as an attempt to re-enslave me and I give them a gentle reminder. I've changed my name and this is what I prefer to be called. When you introduce yourself to people who don't know you from your past and you tell them your name, how does that feel to you? It feels it feels normal. It feels normal. I mean, at first... It was an adjustment for me, um, but now I, I tell you the African words as they roll off my lips, it feels good. It feels good to speak African words and know that I'm speaking about myself in the most powerful and honest and true way that I can. African words feel good in my mouth. Have you inspired anyone else to follow your example? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I know that it's it's piqued a lot of curiosity for people um, that I come in contact with or that I interact with. And I never really try to persuade people to do what I did. But I just encourage everyone to just walk in your truth, whatever that is for you. And if I can be a light or an example, I'm happy to do it. But the decision is up to each individual person. Abenas and Kofa Imhotep, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Charity. Abenas and Kofa Imhotep is an author and executive director of Sankofa Literary and Empowerment Group and Sankofa Literary Academy. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're talking about the power and importance of names and name changes. So far, we've been talking about the names of individuals, but now we're going to focus on place names. And there have been some recent changes to place names in Iowa. Two examples are place names that included the word squaw, which is offensive to indigenous Americans. It's considered to be racist and sexist. And the word has been removed from a creek and park in 
Cedar Rapids, now known as Wanatee Creek and Park, named for Adeline Wanatee, who, among many other things, was the first woman to be elected to the Meskwaki Tribal Council. There's also a creek in Ames, Iowa, which is now called Iowa Creek to honor the Iowa people. Sarah Deese is Assistant Professor of American Religions at Iowa State University, and she is with me now. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Katie. Thank you so much for being here. And there has been a a movement to change some of the place names that are considered to be derogatory or hateful or problematic for other reasons. This is not a movement without controversy, but it really started back in the 60s and 70s. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. So in the 60s and 70s, we saw really a new era in Native American sovereignty. So up until that point, a number of different U.S. government policies really restricted and limited the ways that Native nations could uh, engage in um, in politics and uh, limited many of the choices Native people could make. Um, in terms of even things that seem so simple as expressing their cultural heritage, engaging in uh, religious practices. And so we saw a swing back towards sovereignty, which means a Native nations being able to make decisions for themselves. There was activism in this era, known as the, it's known as the Red Power Movement, and more efforts to reclaim culture and heritage that had previously been really targeted by the government. And of course, because of the history of the United States, probably almost every place in the United States had an indigenous name. And as the settlement movement, the colonization movement made its way west, a lot of places were renamed. Also, some of these indigenous names remained. Of course, we are the state of Iowa, which is named for the Iowa people. So there's, there's kind of this hodgepodge, but there are some of these names that, that really are pejoratives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is true. And so it's interesting because we see all over what is today the United States, there are names of of landmarks, of cities that have uh, some sort of connection to indigenous communities in the area. Um, But you're right. Some of the names that um, these, these landmarks are named after really today have come to be understood in very derogatory terms. So some people who push back against the the renaming of places get frustrated because they feel like it's an erasure of history. It's more complicated than that. But but tell me how you think about it. Yeah. So and I think that that's important to consider that as European and Euro American settlers moved and took over lands that you know really had previously been and many would say are still now indigenous lands. There was a process of renaming, and I think sometimes, I think that sometimes non-Native people forget that, that when settlers moved in and kind of named a lake or named a a town or named an area, that actually was a a renaming. That was an instance in which folks came in and kind of, you know, created a new understanding of a place. So some of the pushback I've seen to renaming places such as this creek in Ames, that's now known as Iowa Creek. Uh, I've seen some critics claim that the process of renaming is a form of 
forgetting history or it's a way of erasing history. But what's important to keep in mind is that, you know, when that creek was named, that word that's now considered offensive, you know, that in itself was actually, you know, this act of renaming. So one of the ways that I think about this process is that that naming is claiming. Naming was a way for for European and Euro-American settlers to really create this new world kind of in their image according to their culture. And so it's not necessarily that when we're renaming Iowa Creek that we're forgetting history or erasing history, but we're actually honoring history in a different way. Well, it's also, it, it was an act of culture making when that creek was named last. It's an act of culture making now, too. Doesn't it say something about who we are and who we want to be? Yeah, I think that's ultimately the goal. And, you know, in both cases, with both of these names, they do refer to Native people and they do refer to Indigenous culture. But they're very, there's a very different way of thinking about what those two names do. And so now, of course, one of the big concerns with the, the slur that actually it's not just in Iowa that we have base names with that name, but all over the United States. And there's increasing concern and outcry about violence that's been done to Native American women and the fact that they are more likely to experience sexual violence or intimate partner violence. So it, there's a, a, a cry, an outcry of perpetuating the sort of derogatory way of presenting women by keeping that name. And so in choosing this, this other name that really, really honors our past in a different way is one that is more sensitive to some of these concerns and is sensitive to the ongoing ways that Native women still, you know, face these, these difficulties. Um, and so it is, it's, it's thinking about this um, this culture and this heritage and, you know, our, our, the way that wider society is relating to Indigenous culture in a different way. Sarah Deese, thank you so much for talking with me. Of course. Thank you for having me. Sarah Deese is an assistant professor of American religions at Iowa State University. This hour, we're talking about names, choosing one's own name, changing place names, the power of names, and we will continue in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're talking about names, their significance, and the cultural forces that shape them. We're also talking about the significance of name changes, individual names or place names. Next up, the most common legal name change takes place when a woman chooses to take her husband's last name when they get married. Dr. Sarah Murray, principal of 7 through 12 schools in Eastern Alamakee, did that, but she didn't do it in the typical way. She is with me now. Hello, Sarah. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for being here. So when you first got married, you did not choose to take your husband's last name. Tell me what went into that decision. Yeah, so um, my husband and I have been married for now 11 years. Um, When we first got married, it was January 1st, um, 2012, and I had just finished my doctorate. 
um, at Drake, and I was really proud of that title, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to make sure I maintained um, Dr. Updegraph, which, which is my maiden name. My parents made a made a very concerted effort to raise strong, independent, smart women, and I wanted to make sure I honored that for them, but also knowing that professionally that had been my name for almost 25 years, I, I wanted to stick with that. You know, we, we got married in the middle of a school year, and even practically thinking, asking high school kids to make a name change for you in the middle of the school year can be really hard. So um, some of that was also practical. But, you know, my husband um, has been and has always been flexible and accommodating and understands the decisions we make are, are systemic for our whole family and was just fine with that. So th- that all makes a whole lot of sense. And you had been living that way for 10 years. And then you decided you did want to take your husband's last name. Why did you make that choice? Yeah. Um, so we moved to Lansing, Iowa, um, three years ago, actually, this weekend, oh, maybe four years ago. I, you lose track of time. We do. Um, and when when we came here, um, we knew, because it's kind of paradise right up here on top of the Mississippi River, we knew this was going to be our forever home. Some, some employment opportunities came open, and um, it has been the case since I got my doctorate that kids have always just called me Doc. It was much easier than saying Dr. Eptograph. That's a mouthful. Mm-hmm. And we decided after 10 years of marriage, that we wanted to do a renewal ceremony. Um, By then, we had had a child together, and my husband has two children from his first marriage, um, all of whom have the last name Murray. And I just thought it was time for me to honor him and to honor them so we could all have the same last name. Now, I did do something unique by dropping my given middle name, and picking up my maiden name as my middle name. So I'm still able to have Uptograph in my name and honor my my own family while still honoring the family that I now get to be a part of. So it was my gift to them as part of that renewal ceremony. Well, that sounds really meaningful. Yeah, it, we we think it is. Um, it's been a transition, though, you know. Uh, yeah, it, so that's, I did 47 years. Right, <laughs> I did not take my husband's last name when I got married, and I had a number of friends who got married around the same time, and they would tell me stories about how much of a hassle it was to change all the paperwork and how they had to take their marriage license places. So you chose to do that, eyes wide open. How How difficult has it been? So... Since we did that in June, I spent all summer working through that process. And, um, you know, after COVID, many of the places where you choose to have your name changed are no longer open face-to-face. So I had to travel all over Northeast Iowa to get my Social Security card, to get my marriage certificate stuff stamped. And it was a lot, but it also helped me understand that process. You know, and because I work with adolescent girls, being able to then share with them what that process is like so I can help them make good decisions is was kind of also in the back of my mind. So how can I help you, our young women, make decisions based on your needs and the practicality of it? So that's been kind of fun to have those conversations with those girls. Yeah, it was It was a lot. Yeah, you've, you've now trod both paths. And you chose to do this over the summer. So as a high school principal, that meant at least that the incoming students would always know you as Dr. Murray. 
Right, right. And again, the kids here call me Doc most of the time. But, you know, I, in my open-in assemblies, because we're an ultra-small school, um, our, our relationship piece is really strong. So our open assemblies, you know, here here we are. Here's my family at our renewal pro- process and our and our our event. So now, please call me Dr. Murray. And if you call me Dr. Uptograph, it's okay. If you call me Doc, that's okay. Just as long as you understand that there has been a change and it has nothing to do with anything that's changed in my life. I just wanted to make sure that I was honoring my family. So. This was, in a way, a, a gift that you were giving to your husband and your family to say to them that you wanted to share this name with them. Do you feel like you did this for them, or do you feel like you did it for you? Oh, both, I think. Um, you know, our our two older children, who aren't biologically mine, um, were not able to attend our first wedding for a variety of reasons, but standing on, we, we did our renewal um, facing the river on our, our front porch, and we, I, would just, I was standing there, and we were all together because all three of the kids were a part of that ceremony, and I just thought, you know, here we are, and I'm like a little choked up now that I'm thinking about this a little more. It, it just was beautiful for us to all share the journey we'd been a part of and for us all to have one thing that we could be together. So it was really cool. Sarah Murray, thank you so much for talking with me. Hi, you're welcome. Sarah Murray is the principal of 7th through 12th grades at Eastern Key Schools. She lives in Lansing, Iowa. And my next guest is non-binary and also identifies as trans. The journey of self-discovery they went on first led them to use they-them pronouns, but also eventually to choose a new name that better reflects who they are. Jasper Chung is a professional photographer who lives in Des Moines. Hello, Jasper. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And you did start this process, publicly at least, with changing your pronouns. What made you feel like that was important to do? Yeah, so I came out as non-binary in 2020. And originally when I had first come out, I hadn't yet decided to make any changes besides labeling my gender publicly as non-binary. Um, and eventually that label alone wasn't enough for me. So I had chosen then to ask people to start using um, they, them pronouns for me, uh, just because the labels that people use in communication uh, have power and have meaning. How did that go for you? Because it, it, it can be challenging for people given that, you know, they've been using different pronouns for your entire life, but also the way the English language is structured. It can be a challenge. Did it go okay? Yeah, uh, it was a struggle <laughs> uh, for some and for others. It was easy. I think um, for most of the people who are close to me in my life, the heart was there. The respect was there. The desire to um, address me as I wanted to be addressed uh, was there. But I think for my parents and my grandparents, just the language usage was a little harder. Um, but then also my queer chosen family really showed up for me. And that was an easier transition for those people to sure. use my correct pronouns for sure. You also then came to feel that your given name no longer felt right. Tell me about that realization. Yeah, um, that one was kind of difficult because my name has 
been really important to me my whole life. Um, and at some point, it just didn't feel like it was fitting. And I kind of went through a period where I felt like I had no name mm. um, because I knew I wanted a new name. But I was so overwhelmed by the process of choosing one, of trying a new name on, and then of telling people this is my new name. Um, yeah, it was a long and emotional process to to find the right name. I, I can imagine. I mean, I have two children. I went through that process for them. They may someday change the names <laughs> that I gave them, but it's, yeah. it is quite the process. There are lots and lots of names out there. Did you actually try on different names to see how they felt? I did, yeah. So um, I tried a few different names before Jasper, and it was so strange. I would go to local coffee shops and give the barista the name that I was trying. Um, It was suggested to me by friends who are trans and who have changed their names to try this method. Mm -hmm. So they were like, just see how it feels to have someone say this name and, you know, referring to you. So I gave that a try and it was always weird. And I did forget what name I gave more than once. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I was like, whose coffee is that? Oh, that's mine. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. So I, I definitely tried on a few before I found Jasper, um, which felt right for sure. What? What do you think made Jasper feel right? Mm, Well, first of all, I uh, have seven siblings. So there's eight kids in my family, and all of us have names that start with J. So my birth name also starts with a J. And all of the other names I had tried on did not. Ah. So, um, and... I don't know anyone personally named Jasper, so there was no history to that name for me. Um, and I don't know. I just I liked how it felt. It um, because I'm non-binary and trans. Um, the name that was given to me felt very, very gendered immediately. And Jasper to me, I feel like in our culture we just decide whether names have gender or not. Um, And while it can feel like a more masculine name, um, to me it doesn't have gender. It just feels, it feels nice, you know? I I don't know. (laughs) Do you, so since you kind of tried names on, do you remember the moment where you're like, yes, this is it. This is me. I am Jasper. Mm, I do remember sitting in, um, in my art studio one night and just kind of scrolling through TikTok, which is where I found the name Jasper, uh, and just saying it kind of over and over, Jasper. And I uh, was writing as well and was just like, yeah, I don't know. It, it felt like a little a glimmer of of light in a time where where there was a lot of like anxiety for me around my gender, around my name. I was yeah, it just felt like a little spark. So yeah. then you had to introduce yourself as Jasper to everybody who loves you and the rest of the world as well. How mm-hmm. did that process go? It went well, actually. Um, because I am a photographer, I have an online presence. So I mostly introduced myself through 
um, social media. So I used um, Instagram and Facebook and just made a post. Uh, I think I said, new year, new me. (laughs) (laughs) And just said, hey, it's been a while since I've done an introduction post. My name is Jasper, and my pronouns are they, them. And just introduced myself as as if I was doing any other introduction post that I had done. Um, Were you concerned about that all professionally, knowing that you had, had worked and had a professional reputation by the name you used to go by? Were you worried that, that would you would lose some, I guess, credibility or, or lose just some recognizability? Yeah, I I did have some concerns, but my last name Chung um, is also very memorable. So um, I wasn't concerned that people wouldn't recognize me necessarily. But thankfully, I had also spent a lot of time being very open online about my journey with my gender uh, and what coming out had been like for me. I shared a lot of the the process, the messy middle. So it was actually kind of very triumphant to nice. say, this is my name now. Nice. Yeah. How has it gone with your family? With my family, the name has gone very well. I didn't have anyone question me or bring anything but love and support. I was very worried um, because my parents are very religious. um, And that doesn't always mean support for trans folks. Um, But I have been very surprised in the warmest way by the reaction of my parents and my siblings and I were all actually very close and so they were just so happy and proud and um, just very welcoming and the transition to use my correct name has gone a lot better than using my correct pronouns actually. Oh wow that's that is very interesting. Yeah. So you know, this is a process that, that has come under a lot of scrutiny and, and has been kind of weaponized in the culture wars. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to you to have been able to choose your name and to have the people that you love use that name? Mm. I mean, we are assigned a gender at birth. We're assigned pronouns at birth. And... Throughout our life, people assume your gender and your pronouns before you say anything to them. They look at you and they think they know who you are. But people do not assume they know your name. They ask you. So to be able to choose the thing that people call you is such an empowering process. To be able to say, this is my name, please use it, in our culture, we tend to respect the name that strangers give us and and loved ones too. So it has really just been, you know, a loving process for me to myself during um, a tough time to, to come out to myself and to others. It's just been a gift truly to say, this is who I am. I love this person. Jasper, thank you so much. Thank you. 
Jasper Chung is a professional photographer who lives in Des Moines. This hour, we've been talking about names, the names we are given, the names we choose for ourselves, the process of changing names, and how our culture and relationships influence those names. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. This episode was produced by Caitlin Troutman. Our other producers are Danny Gear and Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. You never need to miss an episode of Talk of Iowa. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Talk of Iowa. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.